Good day, everybody. Uh, this is Godfrey Genie with Luxury Insight and FashionNetworks.com's podcast. I'm talking to a true expert and a bridge between two cultures, a Chinese person who married a Frenchman and is, uh, has children with him and has worked for such global names as uh, Galerie Lafayette and Van Cleef's and Arpels and has a new project and offering, which we'll hear a little bit about at the end. So I'd like to introduce everybody to Catherine Imard Yu. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Gautrey. Very nice to meet you and to talk to you. Um, let's begin in the beginning. Tell me about your youth and how you realised that you were going to get into luxury and your first steps into that world. I think it's a pure, let's say, other. It's by chance. I was born in China, growing up in China, and studied international economics in China before uh, moving to the United States and did my MBA in marketing there. And I married to my classmate, uh, who is a Frenchman. So we moved to Paris. At that time was the beginning of the 2000s, late 99s and beginning of 2000s. At that moment, Chinese tourists start to come to Europe. Actually, we cannot say tourists because there were no tourist visa at that time. People did come to visit uh, with the business visa. But during the business trips, they spent lots of time for touring and also shopping. So Gary Sofayet was one of the shopping um, meeting points for all Asian groups. I started there uh, just by chance. I was in charge of First, the mainland Chinese markets, and then Greater China, and then Southeast Asia plus uh, Korea market. So the flu or the volume at that time was already incredible. We had on average 1,500 uh, tourists per day. So people could not imagine that. But most of the Chinese tourists gained their first shopping experience in fashion and luxury uh, industry in Gary's Lafayette. What year are we talking about now at this stage? That's around year 2000 to 2007. Yes. So at, at the time, of course, am I right in thinking that France was more open to allowing Chinese people to have tourist visas compared to Britain? Is that correct? Yes. In 2005, we started to have this Schengen visa, yeah. which was a very interesting thing because that was the beginning of uh, Chinese tourism in Europe. Because you could imagine 30 years ago in China, there was not even travel agency. Yeah. There's no concept for tourists. And then when they started to develop the tourist first step, of course, is domestic trips within China. And then when they move out of China, go to outbound tourists, they went to close by cities like Thailand, Southeast Asia. And, and when they finally came to Europe, that was so interesting to have this Schengen visa, yeah. which allowed them to have like five countries in eight days. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's very exciting for them to to go to so many different countries, take pictures and to have some souvenirs to say I've been here. So that was the first mindset. But as you said, the first kind of steps into luxury was actually going to Gallery Lafayette. Exactly. And um, at that time it was very interesting because the Chinese tourists they didn't know much about let's say luxury brands or fashion brands or occidental brands. So as long as the brand uh, name 
was written in letters, mm. in alphabet. Mm. They, they like it. They say, okay, this is not made in China. This is Occidental. This is foreign. This is something that I purchased in Paris and I want to bring home. So that was the first step. And I believe at that time, two groups of people did great job. The first group of people, Chinese media in China, they worked a lot with first brands who opened stores in China. They worked a lot. They, they shared this knowledge or people used to say educate the market. I never like the word educate because I feel so that attitude kind of is superior and very arrogant. I prefer the word to share. So at that time, Chinese media really did a good job to talk about luxury brands, maisons, offers, iconic products. They did a very nice job. And on the other hand, in Europe, these two leaders, two leaders did a very great job because they spend money, they invest on the pieces, they put on themselves, they carry them. And as soon as they start a new group, they started to share the knowledge of projects, brands, mm. uh, and identify the potential clients in the group, uh, try to know their budget and push the right uh, items or brands to these potential clients. So that was very interesting to see the the market gain knowledge and develop quickly. Tell me then, what were the brands they first began to identify with that they they, they made destination brands when they came to Gallery Lafayette? Well, many years ago, I cannot really remember, but depends on the... I like to say moving very fast. We used, we used to have, let's say, um, uh, managers for each country, mm. each uh, Asian country would come to me and say, Catherine, quick, 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 we need to get this brand because people started to ask for this brand, yeah. but we don't have this. So we would write a report to the purchasing center, but purchasing center would take some time to negotiate for the next season. Yeah. When the next season, they finally got the branding and market already changed. They say, oh no, it is already out of fashion. We have to move to another brand. So that was kind of turning very quick. They gained knowledge very quickly. That was the period Chinese tourists or Chinese clients were really curious to learn. They were very open-minded and wanted to learn anything, everything about the brand. So it's you know the way the that when you when <laughs> and how did that? What was the next step after that? I think the first step is they were followers of these luxury uh, sectors. They follow whichever brand what is talking about. So they are like looking up at this brand, and they feel so. Uh, admired and uh, this sector is still so mysterious for them. And the next step would become kind of a challenger. You would say, okay, I don't really like this or uh, <laughs> this is not make, you know, for me. So they kind of bring their inputs to challenge the brand. So you can see since the market is very big and the traction is important, so there are a lot of brands started to adapt their strategy, their marketing communication offers, and try to respond to the Chinese market. So the second, I would say the big second period, it's like Chinese clients changed from followers to challengers. And now I think we're entering the third period. Chinese clients are becoming contributors, they clearly put their inputs in this luxury industry. 
and shaking or reshaping the landscape. How do they do that? First of all, they know they have purchasing power, right? Mm. At the beginning, they didn't. They were they were kind of scared, very uh, feel intimidated uh, in front of these luxury temples, and little by little, by purchasing, by experience, by having more and more bags and watches and jewelry pieces and getting bigger and bigger pieces. At the beginning, it was just the small lipsticks and uh, miniature, a mm. little perfume, and moving to clothes, to shoes, and leather goods, and uh, watches, high jewelry, and, and even more. So they kind of gain confidence. And they know as a group of consumer, they do have this negotiation power. So they establish a relationship with the brands, right? Some designers, some, uh, let's say, brand leaders were meet personally with Chinese clients, their VIPs, and of course, they listen to them, they listen to the market. So I think all these inputs from Chinese market is reshaping the code of luxury world. Can you give me a couple of specific examples how you've seen that happen in terms of products or brands? Okay, let's see the trend or the change for logo. At the beginning, logo is a big thing. Mm. We do need logo to show how much we put in this piece. What did we purchase? And when we carry something with big logos, yeah. that will show our status, right? Mm. And little by little with the maturity of the market, people were saying, oh, logo is not great, it's bling bling, uh, that's not very elegant. So that comes to the period that all brands are kind of being very discreet with mm. their designs and take off logos. And now, little by little, in the past few years, logo just came back, right? Yeah, completely. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, um, how did the type of tourist change? Initially, uh, you know, it's very hard in Western Europe. We have a good idea of someone who's working class or mm. middle or professional or executive or VIP or 1%. That's harder to work out for a Westerner looking at a Chinese consumer. What was your experience? How did that change over that period of 10 or 15 years? Yeah, over the past 20 years, it's very interesting to, to, to witness the evolution. At the beginning, there are more majority group tourists try to spend as less as possible in hotels and food and save the maximum budget on purchasing, on buying luxury goods. And majority of them are men. And little by little, you see more and more uh, IFIT foreign individual travelers and these IFIT they maybe speak the language and have some more some experience in outbound tourist traveling and they maybe came to the country not for the first time but the second time and third time. So you see the percentage of IFIT increase and percentage of group decrease. And also these IFIT people would like to stay in one country, say, I focus in this country. I stay a whole week here. I want you to have a deep experience instead of having, let's say, eight, ten countries within 10 days or <laughs> yeah, okay. crazy itinerary like that. Yeah, okay. And some people would say, okay, I love 
south of France, I would stay there for 10 days. So you see this different, you see it's more and more mature to it. And also uh, shopping used to be uh, the first motivation for traveling Europe. Yeah. They came over here to do shopping because yeah. you get items you don't get in China because the price is less expensive. But now since 2017, shopping is no longer the first motivation for uh, traveling Europe. People came to Europe to to have more experience. They came here with a term, with a term, for example, I came here with a group of young kids to visit museums or, or do a clubs, uh, painting clubs or dancing clubs or singing performance. There's always a term. Some people came to Europe for exhibitions, art exhibitions. Some people came here to say, okay, I want to visit Paris. I want to visit all the sites where they have their uh, famous literature, spend time there, hotels or cafes, all these great writers used to be there. I, I wanted to experience that. So people came with a cultural or ex expectation. Okay, very interesting. There's an awful lot of talk nowadays about um, the trade war that we seem to be entering mm. with uh, China, led by uh, Donald Trump's U.S., how, how do you think that will affect luxury consumption and, and how will it affect uh, luxury brands? It's difficult to say. It's very difficult to predict the whole market, the volume, how, how it will change. I'm more familiar with clients on top of the, the pyramid, uh, purchasing power in terms of these clients won't get effective affected by, by this change. They've had their life standards with luxury goods, settings, experience. So I don't see there's a change in their daily lives and mode of consumption. And at the, the layer, let's say lower uh, majority of middle class people, luxury clients, they still have money to buy, but it's a question of confidence. Do they feel confident that they will earn more in the coming months and years, so they feel confident to spend right now. Uh, they will spend, but they will be much more selective, careful. So I think it's pretty good for those brands who have a true reason to be here. If they have a uh, know-how and a great offer, they have a great reason to be here. Uh, that's the opportunity, the right moment for these brands to, to gain bigger markets. Um you're someone who married a Westerner and then your kids are European and also Chinese. How did being a mum and bringing them up um, alter your perception of, of luxury and interacting with China? Oh, yeah. Good. <laughs> Interesting question. They always know they're half, half. Uh, we always know they're half Chinese, half French, and at home, yeah. my husband speaks French with them. I speak Chinese, only Chinese with them. And they spend uh, half of their vacation time in China. So I try to give them both cultures. And uh, I'd like to share my experience with my kids. So when I have some um, client meetings, client dinners, if I'm quite familiar with the clients, actually the clients are happy to meet, meet with my family and my kids. 
like I try to share with them and bring them to art exhibitions, it's important to explain the code. Uh, luxury for me, it's one of the best things I've learned in France. It's that attitude in these luxury companies. I find people are fabulous because they do their best to, to ensure the quality, details, quality, uh, value. I think that's the key point to share. Okay, very good, very good. Tell me now, uh, explain to me something. China's just launched a new e-commerce law this year. Can you explain it to to our Western viewers or everyone, rather, and, and how you think that'll affect uh, behavior? Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good news and will bring positive uh, influence uh, for, for luxury brands. There are two factors we, we could uh, look at. The first one, uh, it, this new law, obliged the e-commerce platforms in China to be responsible to the authenticity of the goods they share. For example, on certain, let's say, uh, e-commerce websites uh, or platform in China, they have so many boutiques. If one of the boutiques is selling fake products and if any brand finds this and they file an issue on that, the platform is responsible to, to, to take off this or close this boutique, they're responsible to do something to stop this happen. So I think it's good to help the e-commerce environment to be more, um, let's say, healthy and uh, fair in certain ways. Then another factor is about Daigo. Daigo uh, is the intermediate people who will purchase luxury products overseas and send them either by post or personally deliver that in China. So we call Daigo. It's been like a profession for the last some years. Now, this law clearly prevents Daigo to, to do the business in the way they did because they never paid tax. And Daigo had some problems with the quality, authenticity of the products as well. So it's good for brands to stop this, let's say, Daigo clients they're not two clients. So in this way, they can meet their two clients, the real users of their products. I think it's, it's quite positive. Okay, very good. Now, let's talk about you again. You were, uh, how long, nearly 10 years in Gallery Lafayette? Uh, yeah, a little bit over 10 years in Gallery Lafayette. And then I was first in charge of uh, uh, Asian business yes. for the flagship store in Ausman. And later, I moved to the headquarters to to be project manager for store openings in Beijing and Shanghai. I worked on the two projects. And my last job in Gary Stafayet was international marketing manager, so taking care of marketing activities for overseas stores. Uh, and then I moved to Van Cleef. Did you travel a lot then with stars like you did with Gary Lafayette? Yes, always. Always especially between China and France. For some of the years, I would do like 10 trips. 10 trips a year? And what? <laughs> to Hong Kong, to Shanghai, to where? Um, mainly to Shanghai and Beijing. At that period, uh, luxury or various Lafayette or luxury brands were mainly looking at tier one cities. So tier one cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Guangzhou. Now in China, we started to talk about 
new tier one cities. It's more like tier two cities, they are gaining importance, yeah. they're growing, and they kind of enter into this tier one uh, criteria. And Galerie Lafayette would have stores in all of them. We tried to have a project in Shanghai that didn't work, and yeah. finally it was open in Beijing. Oh, it was. So why were you going? You were going there to meet with... I don't understand. Why were you in China then? For the early years, when I uh, was in charge of Asian tourist business, so we need to go to China to meet with travel agencies, mm-hmm. uh, airlines, to talk about galleries. Sometimes meet with media people. That was mm-hmm. really the beginning, to share knowledge with the market. I remember, quite interesting, at that time, we even didn't have the translation for the word luxury. So <laughs> how do you say luxury in Chinese? We, we discussed with journalists and find so many different versions and just couldn't get the right one. So I participated in the translation of luxury. And later, there are other words like exclusivity. How do you translate that into Chinese to reflect the true meaning? So so the reason is always to meet with potential uh, business partners, clients, uh, to get to know the retail landscape have to fit for retail business, the location, it's a key word. So you really have to be there and walk uh, streets by streets, doors by doors to, to understand the flow of clients and also the brands presented there. What was your role in Van Cleef and Arpels? Oh, I was very lucky. I worked uh, directly with Mr. Stanislas de Cassis, uh, who is a great leader. And uh, I was in charge of shares with China, everything with China, related with China. So basically my mission was to help the whole maison uh, to understand China. What is China? What is Chinese clientele? Uh, what is the culture? How do we set up a strategy? And how do we recruit the right people and uh, develop the good working methods and develop the business? What, what role does data, uh, you know, luxury insiders of da- uh, data, what role does... Interesting question. I think at the beginning, even at those days, we, we use data. We use data with tax refund companies to understand the volume. We use data from, uh, let's say, French tourist ministry to understand the flow of tourists. At the beginning, there, these are pieces of data from different sectors, but we didn't really use them in the process of decision-making. Nowadays, it's more and more important because we have to make decisions on factors instead of intuition to say, I feel like that, I see like that. Now it's more uh, professional data. That's why Luxury Insight is here, because they centralize data. Uh, dedicated, specialized for the luxury sector. Okay, okay. And especially the Chinese desk, yeah. Okay. My last question for you, you've a a new job. Uh, I believe you don't want to tell us where you're going exactly, but tell us why are you looking for a fresh challenge and and from which country is the brand? 
that's a French group, uh, iconic luxury French group. I'm moving with them to Asia, to Hong Kong. I believe the the Chinese luxury market now is moving back to China. It's been outside China for so many years. In 2017, Chinese clients contributed 33% of luxury goods purchasing. And out of the 33, 75% made overseas. But I think this volume, this trend is going to change. More and more retail actions will be happening in China. So it's very important to move back to China and to work closely with the market. That's one of the motivations. I'm lucky to be in France for over 20 years and to witness the growth of the Chinese luxury market from the beginning till now. And since the market is moving back to China, so I think I will follow the market. (laughs) <laughs> okay look Catherine it's been fascinating talking with you you've a, a different point of view than I think any of us <laughs> which has been refreshing thank you and I wish you all the best on your your new job and uh, thanks for speaking to luxury insight and fashion network.com uh, for our podcast thank you very much and I it's a great pleasure to talk to you Mr. Dini Thank you for saying that. Good day.